I hope you have your seatbelts on for this one. This is like, whew, this morning was tough, but this one is, this is magnified. We're in Second Peter, chapter number 2. Second Peter, chapter 2, which is uh, a twin, if you will, of the book of Jude. I believe from years I've looked at these two books side by side that Jude took his material from Peter. There are some who believe that the opposite. And, and not with the details that Peter puts in that Jude just summarizes. It just doesn't seem that way. And the main thing is that uh, Jude said that the false teachers were coming and Peter says they're here. And so I think there's a slight difference between the two books uh, in that regard. So Peter's dealing with them. Uh, they're already among the people that he's addressing. And unfortunately, Jude wrote to one congregation and Peter wrote to another congregation and they both had the same problem. It was going on in their day and age. The false teachers were abundant. And in case you're wondering if that was uh, just everywhere, just study the life of Paul in the book of Acts and guess who followed him from church to church? The false teachers did. And every time Paul set up and ministered and he was there a few weeks, false teachers moved in. And he had trouble in Ephesus, he had trouble in Thessalonica, he had trouble in Philippi. He just had false teachers follow him from place to place to place. And so, those are difficult years. And so, when you read, read these passages, at first, years ago, when I dealt with them, I always thought, well, thankfully, that's a long ways off for us. I don't think so. Do you? I I think it, this page is still wet with the ink that they wrote with because of the nature of these things. So we're going into a tough passage. I, I know it's a tough passage, and yet we've got to walk through this and understand something very, very important. So join me in first or Second Peter 2, uh, starting in verse number 4 and going through verse number 9. All right? It's a big section, and we're, we're not going to take it apart exactly piece by piece, but pretty close. Uh, verse 4, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to the pits of darkness, reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, and if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds, then there's a lot of ifs coming up to this then. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Okay, verse 9 is where we're going to focus primarily on what he's talking about in this section. And there's two things brought out specifically. The Lord knows how. He knows how to keep his own. In the midst of very terrible days. These were not easy stories. And if you were righteous in the middle of that, that was a tough place to live. 
And the fact is, the Lord knows how to keep you. And to me, that's very encouraging right now. As I see what's on the, you know, the tsunami waves that look like they're heading our way, when you talk about society and the sins of our land just starting to dominate left and right and left and right, you say, oh, how are we going to get through this? Well, there's something beautiful in the fact that the Lord knows how to preserve us. He knows how, and that's good news. But he also knows how to keep those under punishment that live ungodly lives. He knows how to do that. And guess what? He can do them simultaneously and perfectly. And that's what we're going to work on as we study this through. It's going to take us more than one night because what I'd like to do is first go through it on the negative side. And I hope it doesn't depress you. All right? All the ways it shows that God is capable, as it says in verse number 9, to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Right? That's the setting of every single one of the stories. That God did punish. And that's what they deserved. And that we're going to emphasize this week. And then should we get through all that next week, we're going to go through and see that God can also rescue the godly in the midst of that. And we're going to bring the people back into this story. Because Jude doesn't deal with the people. But Peter does. He says, Lot. He says, Noah. And others like that. He brings them up. And so what we're going to do is talk about them in the midst of trouble. All right? See my little pattern I'm going to work with here? So if you're saying, Pastor, you skipped half that verse, so that's the best part. It's because I'm saving it for all the rest, all right? We're going to get to it. But for tonight, we're going to look at the tougher side uh, of what he's talking about here. Now, notice something very important, I think. Um, well, not I think, I know. In every single case here, he brings up in verse number four, angels who sinned. In verse number 5, the flood. In verse number 6, Sodom and Gomorrah. Those are terrible situations in the Old Testament. We're going to go to those stories and look at them a little bit. But notice in each of these, and just set your mind this way, that the sin of a few affected everybody. What some did caused a terrible thing for everyone around them. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, five cities were destined to be destroyed. Four of them actually were. God spared one because Lot begged for it. But uh, four cities, the population of four cities destroyed because of the sin of some. In that, And we say, was it the whole place? Well, there were little children in there and everyone else too. And the whole place was destroyed because of the sin of some. The angels who sinned. That wasn't all the angels that sinned. But some of them did. And it created another catastrophe that led to the next verse when God destroyed the whole world by a flood. And we're going to see it in its context. And yet, only seven people survived that one. So, in this case, does sin affect a whole nation? It certainly does. The sin of a few could have hurt a lot of people. And that's unfortunate, but that's true. Uh, and yet, in this, God knows what he's doing. So, uh, as we walk through this, we're going to see the judgments that are there. We're going to see how God did destroy them. And so many were destroyed in the process because of the sinfulness of a few. Now, the illustrations are there to show you the danger again, like we're talking in the morning, of what a false teacher can do. 
Just one in the midst can cause damage for everybody in that place. And that's the picture. It doesn't take a lot of false teachers in one place to cause damage. Just one can do it. And that's, that's the essence behind this little section we're dealing with. He's dealing with false teachers, and these are just illustrations of it. So we step back for a minute and say, then what are we to do with all this? Uh, let's remember still, as a pastor, as a teacher, as we have elders and, and such in our church, we have a responsibility, and we know that. Our responsibility is to carefully watch over the flock. We're to guard it from those kind of dangers. And that's what we're supposed to be doing. As members of a congregation, we all have the responsibility to be maturing in Christ so that we are guarded personally and as a whole congregation against false teachers. All of us are in the same job. And that is to keep an eye out for these things and make sure that we're all maturing in the faith. That's so essential. We need to know Christ. We just need to know Him. And if we're not doing that, if the leaders fail, if the members fail, it could damage the church. But here's the beauty. The Lord never fails. And I like that. I've got to hang on to that one because sometimes we don't do everything we're told to do. But when it comes down to it, the Lord knows how to do this. And that's good news. All right? So I set that before you, even as we're going into something tough tonight. Let's put it right where it is. The Lord knows how. All right? And we can rest in that. And it's good to have somebody who knows what they're doing. And he does. Okay, you ready? Take a deep breath. We're ready to dive into this. This is really, it's, it's not pretty at all. We're, we're going to look at what is going on in this picture. The Lord knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. He knows fully how to do this. He's not learning as he goes. He's not like on the job training thing. He knows fully what to do. This has not caught him by surprise in any way. He already has it completely understood inside and out. Nothing is outside of his omniscience. We like that word, omniscience. He knows it. And he knows it that well. So we start with that, and that's a beautiful place to start. Let's have a word of prayer and then start digging. Heavenly Father, help us with this passage today. It is a challenging one. It's a difficult one in the New Testament. But... In our day and age, we need it too. And I pray that you help us understand it so we can live it out in the way that you want us to apply it and serve you. So guide us through it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Notice something, first of all. Just observation things here. From verse number 4 all the way to verse number 8, these are all events that's already happened. They're all just simple, past tense events, right? They're already rec- the record of Scripture. They're not even treated like they're, they're fairy tales or some you know legend or something like that. They're all recorded as completed events. So they understood, even though they weren't there, that these things are true. They didn't, you know, Peter's writing and what they understood about the angels who sinned. Where did they sin at? How did they sin? What did they do? God says, write it down. It happened. All right? So he did. And then he wasn't there when the flood happened either, did he? Was he? 
he had record. Moses wrote it out in Genesis. You could read it yourself. And so they said, okay, I believe that. Do you know, believing the flood is an issue of faith? When you start going through Hebrews chapter 11, it's an issue of faith. People try to figure it out scientifically. And usually the scientists are trying to prove it's not true. But we take it and understand it, and we say, oh, it's by faith. But we weren't there. We weren't there in Sodom and Gomorrah. Thank the Lord for that. But all of these are recorded as fact. They're not put up to us like, well, potentials. Because the way he starts it in verse number 4, for if, and he's not saying if like good old American English, if, ifs. You know, like we use ifs all the time, if. If I make it on time, I'll catch the train or something like that. We thought that about the plane all the time. If I make it on time, I'll catch the plane. But uh, uh, these are not the words if in the Greek text. They're the words since. See, it's based on reality. It's not based on potential. These are real. And all the way through, he uses the word since. Since this happened. Since this happened. Since this happened, he emphasizes it all the way through. And so I affirm that as we start here. These are reality, and all of them will be true. God did not, verse number 4, spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, I've read commentaries on this. They're trying to figure out, Exactly which story is this one? When did this happen? Some people think it was when Lucifer had rebelled against the Lord up in heaven, stood up in his pride, tried to take over the throne. You've read that in Isaiah probably, or Ezekiel. And he says, I will, I will, I will put my throne above the Lord and such like that. And when he sinned, he took a third of the angels with him. And they said, well, that's the story. That's it. That's what happened. When the angels sinned, God, did Satan get tossed into hell? No. Matter of fact, the angels didn't either. The angels have another name today, these ones. We call them demons. All right? They're not happy people. All right? They're just not. They're very sinful people. And uh, they didn't go down to hell to have a party. Right? Uh, contrary to what, you know, the far side cartoons would present to us. Uh, they they were not in charge. Matter of fact, they don't stand there with pitchforks poking people back down into the, the fire and into the, the, you know, brew, whatever is cooking down there. They're not in charge. Matter of fact, according to the words Jesus talked to, remember, before the demons went into the swine, they were begging him, don't send us to that place. Because they know that day is coming. But that was not the day. So I'm going to say, this is probably not that episode. Right? As a matter of fact, it's, it's not all the angels that are being referred to here. Some of them sinned in a particular way. And they, some of them were cast into hell, where they are now, some of them were put into chains of some kind, and they're committed there to judgment. You say, okay, then we need another episode. If it's recorded in Scripture, we can find it, maybe. But if it's not recorded in Scripture, we just have to trust the Lord on this one, right? We think it's Genesis 6. 
I say we. I mean, that's what the most intelligent theological guess would be, if you want to call it that. Let's go back to Genesis 6. Not a happy story, folks. That's why I, I wasn't referring to it this morning or last time in the book of Jude in the morning service because we had little ears there and they draw pictures every week of my sermons. And there's a certain picture I don't want to see. All right? And uh, somebody drew the picture. Oh, it was so good this morning. Whoever, Still, don't tell me if you know. But somebody drew me the picture and they even had the serpent snake on there and everything else. It was very impressive. One whole side of the page was on the evil side of what I was sharing with it. And the whole other side of the page was all on the great side of the Lord's love for us. And I said, very clever. Whoever did that put a lot of time into recording that. And I was thinking, by the way, everybody should be given crayons and a piece of paper on a Sunday morning. That way everybody could draw me a picture of what the sermon looks like. That'd be kind of fun. Maybe not. Maybe Actually, I did have a class like that at Moody. Uh, a Hebrew, he was teaching the book of Hebrews, and our responsibility every week was to draw a picture of the next chapter we were going to study. You want a challenge? Draw a picture of Hebrews chapter 6, or one of those other chapters. Draw a picture of it. That is a big challenge, and we thought we knew everything. And he taught us we didn't know much at all. Trying to put that down into an illustration is tough. But somebody in this church does a very good job of it. And I didn't want a picture of this. All right, so that's why I left it for Sunday nights. But here we are. It, it starts in, in Genesis 6, verse 1. Now, like I said, we think this is what happened. All right? And I'm going to lean that way heavily because of this is just before the flood. And Peter brings that up second. That's my rationale. But now it came about... When men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he is also flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were in the earth in those days, and also afterwards, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Right, stop right there first. And it's like, what? <laughs> As you're going through this, who are these people? What's happening here? As I read through it, did you sense that God was not pleased? Yeah. Something is wrong in this picture. And it's not wrong that men and women are getting married. All right, that's not the wrong thing. It seems to be, whoever the sons of God are, and the daughters of men, they weren't supposed to get married. They were not supposed to have children. Apparently, that's what's going on. Now, sons of God is a term used in other parts of Scripture to refer to angels. Not perfectly, because we have other places we talk about the Son of God, and that's Jesus Christ, and he's not an angel. Or other places where we talk about sons of God, uh, you could be referring to human beings in that way too. For we are sons of God in that sense too. So, in this context, it seems to be a unique group who joined with daughters of men, and there's a contrast, 
something maybe celestial mixing with something that was earth-centered. We said, ooh, that's kind of weird. And yet, I know where your mind's probably going. Didn't Jesus say they can't marry, they don't have children, and all this kind of stuff? Maybe that's not always been the case. Again, we'll have to wait for the video when we get to heaven. We say, what is that? I'm going to skip this section. That's when I go for popcorn. All right, I'm not going to watch that part. But whatever is going on here, God is not pleased with it. That's what I could sense. Something is going on that God is not pleased about. And then in verse number 4, there's a group called the Nephilim. And that's an unusual term. They seem to have been some kind of a giant or something. And maybe they're the same as verse number 2, the sons of God. They were unique individuals. They were on the earth in those days. Apparently they're not now. Right? This was before the flood. And... The sons of God came to the daughters of men, and they bore children, and they had some very unusual children. Mighty men who were men of old, men of renown. Who knows what that is? Again, we weren't there, and it's kind of hard to decipher and walk through that and say, what is exactly going on, except for the fact that the Lord was not pleased. Verse number 5 sums it up. And the Lord saw that the wickedness of men was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's all day long. Every thought in the heart of man was evil all day long. And God is looking down there saying, Ah! What is wrong with them? Constant. It's constant. It's their hearts. It's their thoughts of their hearts. And they're wicked. And they're great. And they're on the earth. That's God's view. We say, ooh, this is really, really sad. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. And he was grieved in his heart. That's when he says, I'm going to wipe them out. All right, you have that picture, and then you come over here to our Jude passage, or our Peter passage, and it talks about God's not sparing the angels. All right, keep your finger in Genesis, because we've got to come back to the flood in a minute. But uh, God did not spare the angels when they sinned. That's our best guess if, if that event recorded is the one Peter's talking about. But that's what God is referencing here in Scripture. That's what happened. And God chose to take that particular group of evil angels off the planet. He said, I'm not going to leave them here because they're going to survive the flood. Man won't, but they will. And guess what the next event is? They're going to they're gonna do it again. And apparently God said, nope, not anymore. So he took that group, according to Peter, verse number 4, he cast them into hell, and there's a word here, Hades. It's a place of torment. It's a place where the wicked were put. That's where the wicked were put. They were confined and they tormented there. Hades still exists, folks. We use the word hell. It's, a, it's technically a temporary holding place for the evil the unbelieving. That's where they go. 
They've gone that way ever since the first one died. God had designed that place. It was not meant for them. The whole scheme of punishment was meant for the devil and his angels. Remember? But God says, no, I'll cast the wicked there too. Unbelievers go there. And it's terrible. I call it temporary because eventually hell, Hades, is going to be cast into the lake of fire. That's at the end of the book of Revelation. And so this is kind of like my equation of this is the, the Hades here is like going to jail, waiting for your sentence, and then you're sent to prison. <laughs> All right? That's where they are. And um, it, it, as much as we could walk through that and talk about that, it's terrible. It is pits of darkness, according to this description. It is, it is uh, reserved for judgment, according to the description. And that's where they are cast. So unbelievers are cast in with these evil angels. Evil angels are being punished there. They are there, reserved for judgment at this time. That's what the text is telling us. That angels are there. They're in chains of thick darkness. Now, that's where it gets interesting, because it says they're committed to pits of darkness, and the Greek word is chains of thick darkness. I don't know how you describe that. Because you can't bind an angel with a physical chain. It's something else, because they're spirit beings. And so, there's, there's, however you want to picture that, it's actually chains of thick darkness, that encircle them. They're delivered there to judgment and they're continually kept in that place. They are not allowed out. And that's what God is good at doing, by the way. Remember, the Lord knows how to keep them there. And that's where they are. And thank the Lord for that. They're not on the planet right now. As bad as a demon is, these guys seem to be worse. Whatever the case is, that's where they are. I started reading and You'll say, this is kind of weird, but I've been reading Dante's uh, story of, you know, the Inferno and Paradise and all that stuff. It's just, I thought, this is curiosity to me. And as you're entering into the dark place of hell, there's a sign there's abandon all hope, those who enter here. You've probably heard some of these phrases once or twice. Abandon all hope as you enter here. But this room particularly, where Dante was trying to describe where these people are. He says, The air forever black, I came to a place mute of all light. I just can't imagine being in complete darkness all the time. Never, ever seeing a glimmer of light again. And that's where these folks are. Pits of darkness. Pits of darkness. Kind of a frightening little place, huh? Well, God did not spare them. That's the point. Whatever the story is behind it, God did set an example of these. And that's what he shows he can do. So, move on to verse number 5. And he did not spare the ancient world. Now, I told you I'm leaving the good side out, so I'm taking Noah out of the picture for a minute, if you don't mind. Or just so we could emphasize the negative here. He did not spare the ancient world when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. See, I took Noah right out of the picture, didn't I? When he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Take the middle out and you've got the, the two ends here. Again, he did not spare the ancient world. 
when he brought upon, upon these ungodly people a flood. A flood on the world. That, when I told you to hold your place in Genesis, that immediately follows the angel story. All right? That's the very next thing that comes. After he discusses the angels, the Lord saw, verse number 5, the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intent and every of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animal to creeping things to birds of the sky, where I am sorry that I have made them. The birds had done nothing wrong, the animals did nothing wrong, but notice how sin affects everything. That's terrifying, but it's true. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And then it goes into the story. Jump down to verse number 11. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, and all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. I wonder what he's thinking right now, looking down here. Corrupt? What a word for that. God did not spare that world. You know from the context, you know about the flood. He, he did flood the whole earth in that day. It wasn't a partial flood like some people want you to think. And they say, oh yeah, we've had floods before. Floods that killed all the birds, all the animals, all the people on the planet. That's a pretty thorough flood. And there's plenty of evidence to prove that God is able to do that. And what's fascinating is, He held them to this. He punished them. And the waters came. It prevailed. The people died. That's that's a terrible scene. But you can move all the way through chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8. You have the story of the flood all the way through there. You've heard it before. But God said, I'm serious about sin. And he flooded it. That's pretty intense. But that's the way he dealt with it. He kept those people under his wrath. Noah made it through. His three sons. Three wives of his sons. There's all kinds of fun things to learn about Noah. I told you, we have to do that at another time. We're going to bring up Noah later. But it's fascinating when you study the life of Noah and his faith in the midst of this. How would you feel if God came to you today and said, guess what? I'm going to destroy this whole planet. And I'm going to save you, your wife, and three of your kids. Well, of course, Anthony's saying, oh, which ones? Right? We say, I'll save your kids. Wow, wouldn't that be quite an announcement? What do you do? What do you do? Does God keep his word? Is this a maybe? It was not a maybe. God told him he will do it, and he did it. Matter of fact, that's the anchor for Second Peter chapter 3. Because God proved he could destroy the world one way, he says, I will destroy another way. And he promised that in Second Peter 3, he's going to do it by fire. Are we sure? Oh, yes, we are. Because God's proven that already. The Lord knows how. And that's what it says. The Lord knows how. All of this really comes back to us as believers, and we say, number one, boy, am I glad I'm not one of them. <laughs> that, that's good news. 
But do you not feel also that, that tension in your heart to say, but I know so many who are not saved, who need to know the Lord? What do we do? What do we do? I, I told you I had a wonderful opportunity just this last week being at my dad's memorial service to talk to my brothers and sisters about their their trust in the Lord. Some of them are saved. Some of them are not. And I was able to talk to them. And I was so thankful. My mom and dad set such an example. It made it so easy for me. Because they were they were great in their works. They They served the Lord with their heart. They founded a church. My dad was not a pastor. They were not hired a pastor. They founded the church. They said, we need a pastor. And so they, they went and got a pastor too to lead the church. But they, they were active in it so thoroughly. His, his fingerprints was on every inch of that building because he could repair anything. And that's, that's what he always did. He gave and gave and gave of himself sacrificially over and over and over again. We have records, and we talked about it as children, of all the things my dad did and all the things my mom did, and the pile was enormous. And I said, well, those are all great, but not one of those things got them into heaven. Not one. There was only faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. And so they set as such an example for us because they trusted the Lord for that. And you share that with a brother. You share that with a sister who, who they know the truth but they've never acted like they believed it. They've gone on with their life apart from Christ, and you don't see evidence of that. And it worries me when I read passages like this, and I know God's judgment is still on this earth. His wrath, as we saw this morning in John chapter 3, is on the unbeliever right now. And he's not going to pull off his hand. And they come into eternity, and this is where they go. And it worries me. It bothers my heart to think these are people I love. And I imagine no one knew that too. But as we're reading these stories, we're saying, yeah, those are pretty serious days. The the worst is yet to come. The worst is yet to come. Seven years of this? Tribulation period? And then after that comes the judgment? Which is even worse than that. God knows how. That's the point. God knows how to punish. He's very good at it. As, as a, a father, I brought my children up, and I, I confess, we punished them when they needed it. And we did that for everybody else who's on this planet. Because we didn't want our kids to grow up, and nobody wanted to be around them. So we punished them. We, we taught them, and we, we worked with them, and, and they understood that. None of them regretted, I think. No sure, but none of them seemed to regret it. But the, the look on their face when they knew they were in trouble, it was the same look I had when I was in trouble when I was a kid. We knew that. We knew that that was coming our way. This world is under judgment. It will be punished. These are examples that God is serious about it. The third one, let's look at that one before our time gets away. In verse number 6, And if, no, since, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah in destruction by reducing them to ashes. 
having made them an example for those who would live ungodly thereafter. Jump down to verse 7 and just pull out certain words. We're going to set Lot to the side for a minute. But verse 7, He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And down in verse number 8 at the very end of it, Tormented day after day with their lawless deeds. This is a, a quick picture, if you will, of what Lot had to live through. And we'll talk about Lot the next time. But let's look at what we have. God did con- condemn the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a fact in history. That's a reality. The world doesn't like it now, do they? They think that would be unfair. All right? And they give us all kinds of reasons for that. This place was a place full of ungodly living. God condemned those cities. And Sodom and Gomorrah were two of the four. There were four that were destroyed. Sodom and Gomorrah were two of them. They were not good places to be in the first place. Ungodly places, it says. They were ungodly places. And what God did with them is destroyed them, reducing them to ashes. He didn't have an outside force do this. He did it himself. It rained down upon them the fire and the brimstone. Came down upon those cities and destroyed them. They were just reduced to ashes. There was nothing left of those cities. And what does it say in verse number 6? He did this to make an example of them. For who? Those who would live ungodly thereafter. God's not done with this story. These folks were set, and the word it really is here is it's what we call a perfect tense verb. It is a permanent token of what God thinks of what went on in those cities. It's a permanent token. He hasn't changed his mind. The world wants him to change his mind. They want to, to make all this acceptable, immorality to be acceptable. It's, it's just the way life is. It's, it's okay. We could do this. And churches are buying into it too. They're all walking around saying, well, that's okay. It's okay to do that. And yet God set it as a permanent example by reducing them to ashes. Something that he was not going to take off the planet and say, okay, they've, that was enough. But forever it is set for the world to see how God thinks this ungodliness is. That's pretty potent. But that's what he says. I am going to always, always, always have this as my example of what I do with this kind of ungodliness. What did they do? Well... We know their sinfulness. We could go back to the story and find out exactly what their sinfulness was. But when you go into verse number 7, they were oppressing people with it. Speak of Lot, but Lot's probably not the only example. It says Lot will be our example next week. He was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. That means, here's literal words, you ready? They exhausted him with the constant pressure for him to join them. He was exhausted from it. That's the word oppressed. It was a constant, constant, 
constant, wearying, overpowering, suffering type of a word. They oppressed him, oppressed him with their sensual conduct. And they're unprincipled men. That means they operated unrestrained. No laws, no rules, do whatever you want, unrestrained, just live it out. And they oppressed him constantly. This outrageous, one translator put it, the outrageous mode of life. Jude calls it licentiousness. (laughs) It's the same thing. It was a constant pressure to those who lived in that territory. I think we're getting closer to that all the time in our society. It's a constant, constant pressure. And we're hoping it goes away. But I don't think it's going to go away. I think the intensity is going to keep ramping up. Constant pressure. That's one thing they did. The second thing they did in verse number 8 was they tormented him day after day with their lawless deeds. They tortured. You see that word? Tortured? Tormented. Constantly. Day after day after day after day. It was the same thing they brought to his doorway every single day. He really went through agony. This tormenting went on and on and on and on. And God looked down upon that and said, I'm going to destroy it. Because the Lord knows how. That was, who knows how many years ago, uh, 2,000 on this end of the cross, maybe 4,000 on that end of the cross, or maybe a little bit less. Maybe it's been 5,000 years since. Maybe 4,000 years since that God did this. How far have we graduated in sin since then? It's repeating itself. What's the old phrase we were taught? Those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Our society is walking face first right into this one. Exactly like it is. Has God changed his mind? No, he has not. That's a tough place to live. I don't know if we're to this point where we're constantly oppressed by it or that we're being tormented by it, but Lot knew it. Lot knew it. But this was the nature of sinfulness in that day. And God, when he could have picked out any examples of disobedient people, ungodly people, he chose these three stories. And they're all the epitome, aren't they? Of, oh, that's terrible. And God says, I want you to understand, I know how to do this. I know how, verse number 9, let's go back to it. I know how, second part, to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. I know how to do it. What's interesting is Peter's letter. Just turn the page for a minute, chapter number 3. Chapter 3, verse 3 and verse 4. Knowing this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, and they make fun of these stories. They say, oh, they're not true. They're fantasy. They're fiction. They're just not true. Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust, and saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, that is not the rapture. They're not saying, when is it going to come again? Rapture, we want to go. 
the coming here is the punishment. And notice what they're mocking. God is not really going to do that. God is not really going to do that. Oh, no, God's not like that. You know, that's being taught in pulpits today. That God's not like that. He doesn't punish anybody. God loves everybody. You know, there's even a group that believes that even Satan is going to be redeemed someday. It's like, what? They say, oh, yeah, someday, you know, God's going to recycle, re- reconcile the whole world to himself. And Satan's going to be reconciled too, and everything's going to be happy. That's not what Scripture says. But that's, that's what they're teaching in pulpits. They're teaching us that there is no, no fear of hell. There is no fear of punishment. There's nothing to fear. There's another group teaching us that, well, the unsaved will just understand punishment for a brief moment, and then poof, they're gone. They're annihilated. And they won't experience it forever. And that's not what Scripture says either. The Lord knows how to keep them under punishment. And that's, it's just too awesome to try to define it in, in the fullness of the words. It's just way too big. But this is what the Lord is capable of doing. He knows how to, to hold these under punishment, to keep them under punishment. And of all these things I've shared with you tonight, is the most frightening of it in this passage is that it's in the present tense. It's not talking about the future tense. He's saying, right now, these ungodly ones, in our day and in the days prior to us and the days that's going to follow us, they are presently under the wrath of God. Right now. It's not waiting until that day happens, but right now they are under His wrath. Right now, these ungodly, unrighteous, unbelieving people are continually under His wrath. That's pretty impressive to me, to think about that. What do we, what do we see? We, we see this. Do you know if it wasn't for the Lord saving us, that's where we would be right now? We would still be under His wrath? Thank the Lord for His saving grace. Wow. And He could save these people too. He's capable of it. But the unbelievers are held this way. Under God's wrath, that's the punishment. And that's what will happen if there's no change of heart. God will hold them under His wrath forever. It's an awesome thing to do. And tonight, I don't share all that to you with you so that we can sit back and be a little smug, you know, say, oh, they deserve it, you know, and all this kind of stuff. Like, that's, you know, that's what it is. But the bombshell, I think, in Peter's writing is in Second Peter 3, and it's verse 9. In the midst of all this, the Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, that's the punishment, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord knows how to do that too. That's the beauty of this all. He, he is not taxed doing three things at once. He can hold the guilty under His wrath, He can preserve the righteous in difficult days, and He can wait patiently in mercy that some would come to know Him. Amazing. Aren't you glad He's God? 
He's in control. He knows what he's doing. That's a beautiful thing for us to see. But the Lord is patient. He's patient. He's patient. Now, I could I could talk all night about things like this. And I, I watch the news and I see what's going on. And I see the sinfulness in our country. And it bothers me a great deal. And I'm sure it does too. But it's just as sinful in Cambodia. It's just as sinful in Canada. It's just as sinful in Madagascar, and you start naming the places, there's sin everywhere. I wish there was a place we could all move where there isn't there, but the planet's covered. And yet, Jesus Christ died for this world, didn't he? We have a gospel message. It's the only solution for them, is what you and I hold as treasures in our heart right now. That's the only solution. Guess what our job is? Share it with them. Somebody shared it with us, and we're very glad. But the very fact that this country is still here right now is pure patience of our God. And I wonder if he's being just as patient with us as he is with them to say, oh, I've asked them to go out and share this. And these people need to hear it. And maybe we've been reluctant. It's kind of hard to go to a neighborhood that looks like that. But that's where Peter starts us tonight. So, you saw this ugly stuff now. Next week we're going to talk about the good stuff, all right? How, the God, how our same God can preserve the godly. And that's a happy story. So, I'll leave you with that for this evening. We'll have a word of prayer and we're done. And don't be depressed when you pick up the kids or something, all right? It's just, we know our Lord and we're happy that He is who He is. Heavenly Father, thank you for your consistent character. The fact that you can show us from Old Testament story all the way through to eternity that you are the same yesterday and today and forever. And we thank you, Lord, for that because we can count on your word. We thank you, Lord, for the fact that you saved us through Jesus Christ and his blood for us. And we're so thankful for that. And you're not going to change your mind on that point either. We praise you for that. You know that we live in a wicked world, and you know that it's under your wrath. We know that too. And as we look around us, Lord, perhaps there's somebody this week, just somebody we can share the gospel with, just somebody we could plant a seed in their heart that they might come to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, we do have a treasure that we keep within us that we shouldn't keep to ourselves. Help us to be bold. Help us to be willing. Help us to be quick. And give us compassion to see a field that is ripe for harvest. Help us, Lord, in this. For we are looking forward to what you're going to do, especially when you call us home. Until then, help us to be good servants of yours. And help us to see the world as you see it. And may that give us the urgency to carry on our business, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.